Yeah, so I, I think it's it's really interesting, right? Because there's if you look at all the agronomy predictions, right, the growing area for coffee is gonna be decimated in the next 20 to 30 years, um, which means there's gonna be a lot less coffee on this planet. Uh, there's some people on the plant genetic side trying to fix that. I absolutely hope they, they can figure that out. I think you know, the more solutions, the better to a problem like this. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing uh, huge growth in consumption of coffee. Uh, that growth is not necessarily really in the U.S. or in Europe, but much more so in the developing world. And so I think those markets are you know, maybe the most interesting of where per capita consumption is rising the fastest and they're slightly more price-sensitive markets. Uh, where we can really deliver something of exceptional value in a price point way, quality way, uh, where people might not be able, would be priced out of those, you know, products, etc. Welcome back to Winning at Work. It's season three, the podcast for the food and beverage and CPG world. I'm Jennifer Lee, Tony's new marketing sidekick and creative guru. I'll attempt to keep him on track as we discover the ideas and strategies behind all these different veteran special brands. Oh, good luck keeping me on track, but I am really stoked to have you on the team, Jennifer. Your background in marketing and SEO and socials, we are going to have so much fun this year. We're going to be discovering the new brands here in 2023. It's all about functional, good for you, lifestyle brands. Those are trending. Those are the products that are gaining market share and really pulling away from those old legacy brands. We're going to have each and every one of those brands down on the podcast to talk to us, to share their ideas, their inspiration. So you, the entrepreneur, so you, the food and beverage and CPG professional can take these new ideas in and incorporate them into your business and into your life. Oh my gosh, Tony, I'm seriously so excited. I feel like I learn so much just from listening to older episodes. Well, that's why we're here. And if this is your first time here, I would recommend, look, go back, take the five episode challenge, pick a brand, pick a CEO, an entrepreneur, dive in, listen to what it is that they're teaching us. If you love the content, subscribe. We hope you're along with us for the journey each and every week. By the way, do you have a favorite brand in your market you would love for us to amplify on this national platform? Reach out to us on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for this week's episode. Hey, it's Jennifer. We get it. Everyone hates hiring. Inspired by his guest, Tony created a novel talent acquisition program that attracts the hidden candidate market, the 70% of people that are not actively applying to jobs. Click on the attract link in the show notes to watch a demo. Hey, everybody. This is Tony from Winning at Work. Can you imagine starting a company that was going to disrupt the category of peanut butter? And what your plan was, you were going to make a peanut butter product without peanuts. That would be an amazing accomplishment if you could do that, right? What about if you decided to say, let's go after the category of chocolate. Let's do it cocoa free. If you could pull that off, another monumentous accomplishment. What about coffee? Hugely adopted and accepted around the world. Let's create a coffee product bean-free. Any one of those three would be remarkable. But today, I have Adam Maxwell, CEO, Voyage Foods. 
The man is taking on all three. <laughs> Welcome in, Adam. Awesome. Thanks so much for the fantastic introduction. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you think about that. Your tag is like you're literally climbing three separate, you know, you're doing K2, you're doing um, <laughs> uh, you're doing a Himalayan mountain chain. Yeah. No, it definitely feels like that most days, but uh, it's all good stuff. So I want to give people just a 30,000 foot overview of your background. You graduate um, 2016. Whoops, I just broke my first commandment. We don't ever talk about dates. You graduated from. McGill- I also didn't graduate. I see, left in 2016. See, I love that. I mean, this, this listen, I'm going to tell you, the college model, I feel like, is crumbling literally around the corner, right in front of us. Let's touch on that because you left in 2016. And then you go to, you know, you're a food scientist at Chu. Then you become head of product development at Endless West. Now, that's a technical, you know, scientific position. So how did you even get into that without the quote unquote, you know, degree? Uh, I I was was really good at what I did. Um, And like, (laughs) of course, but I mean, even get in the door. Yeah, I. The, I, I think I got lucky time and place. You know, the the first company I worked at, Chu, uh, the founder and CEO of that, hadn't graduated college. So I think he thought it was really exciting to see a food scientist applying who also, you know, hadn't matriculated. So I think I, I got, got lucky it. with the first role. And then after the first role, no one ever asked or seemed to care or oh, anything like that. It seems like once you have demonstrated good work go. in the industry, it doesn't seem to matter anymore. That's it. The horse was already out of the gate and it was racing down the track. You're doing something right now that is really monumental. And before we kind of dig in and try to understand those things, just tell us about your brand. What is your mission, your passion, and, you know, how do consumers kind of view your brand at this point? Yeah, like at our core, you know, Voyage Foods is really here to make better food for a better planet. Um, and make foods that are more environmentally friendly, scalable, cost-effective, enduring, uh, and available forever on forever, right? Like we're trying to just fundamentally, you know, this isn't a five-year plan for any of us. Um, you know, we want to see how far we can go in the next, you know, 30 to 50 years, right? And so it's how can we really disrupt the food industry to make uh, better food for a better planet, given that, you know, Climate change is real and it is disrupting food supplies. Deglobalization is disrupting food supplies. And so how can we make as big of a dent as, as possible in that? I love your tagline, favorite foods forever. I mean, these really, truly are favorite foods. I mean, I probably consume two, if not three of these a day. I think what's really fascinating with many of these startups is the desire, the need for funding. Um, in this climate, though, I'm hearing it is very challenging. I've talked to beverage brands. I've talked to CPGs. Very difficult. So you have actually acquired funding, and I believe you've gone through two raises. I want to start just by having you tell us your journey through this capital raise process and some of your key learnings um, going forward. Yeah, so I think on the capital raise side, 
you know, if you look at consumer, a, a consumer products good company, which we're not, right? If, if we were just to launch a, a coffee beverage in the standard coffee cooler in uh, Sprouts or something, that would be like a very different model, right? We'd raise at much lower multiples, we have different types of investors, et cetera. Um, but given that we're really building this company on the intellectual property and the technology and looking much more at the business to business, like large scale ingredient sales, um, you know, it's a very different investment model than like your, you know, your standard consumer food product or consumer product, right? Um, and I think on the lesson side, well, I guess we can start with the, the process and then go to the lessons. I think what everyone tells you of it takes longer and is a little more frustrating than you'd expect, like those things are definitely true. Um, would never say it's a non-laborious process. I think I've heard a lot of founders say this and I definitely feel the same way, but uh, at the end of the process, I think when people feel like they should be ecstatic, they're just like, I'm happy it's over. <laughs> they're but, just exhausted. Yeah, yeah, just like, you know, don't even get the celebration date because they're just so happy it's done. Um, but I think the really core lesson for me was we've had a lot easier time fundraising than I think a lot of companies in the space have. Um, and the reason behind that is we really built from the bottom up like this real kind of values-based R&D system of we're not going to touch anything where we're not lower cost than the commodity products we're trying to you know, disrupt. We're not going to do low-margin goods uh, because it's hard to build a business on that, right? We're going right. to build stuff on highly scalable technologies so we can get to tens of millions of dollars in revenue very quickly based on a process and operational efficiency standpoint. Um, and because of all those things, I think, you know, my learning is just have really good business fundamentals. And I, and I know that's a silly, a silly, silly thing to say because, of, of course, that should be it. But, you know, I think nothing about me pitching the product or me pitching the company or us having good decks or data rooms help in any way, shape or form. It was really just, we had a really investable business. Um, and I think more people should think about that, uh, those pieces in fundraising than, you know, what my deck font looks like and, 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 and the like. Right. So after you took the funding, how did you go about to organize your spend and your priorities to maximize the ROI and really keep those investors feeling as though this is a, uh, a sound, a sound business person? Yeah. Capital pragmatism. Uh, my former boss, Alec Lee from Endless West was the most, uh, capitally pragmatic person I've ever met in my entire life. And it was fantastic to study him as the CEO for the years that I've worked under him. And I think a lot of that carried, carried with me, but you know, it, it goes back to being cost effective on everything, right? You know, I'm sitting in a chair that we got from uh, another startup that went out of business on option, you know, a huge amount of stuff in our facility was purchased like that. Same thing with equipment. Um, but we're a capital intensive business. We self manufacture everything we do, which means we have to build factories, which means we have to buy food equip, uh, equipment manufacturing technology. Um, R&D is also very capital intensive, right? Um, and how you allocate capital changes over time and what stage of the company you're in, right? Uh, right. The first year and a half, like until we closed our series A, you know, most of that 
capital was spelt, spent on building our first factory, on R&D personnel, on operational personnel, quality assurance. Uh, that split has changed a lot since our Series A. You know, we're sinking a lot more money into uh, our marketing team, into sales and sales materials, and you know, travel to visiting customers and and, and store visits, etc. And so I think you know how you allocate capital depends very seasonally on where you are. Um, but for us, you know, uh, we'll, we will always have to invest heavily on the manufacturing and research side because that's really our competitive advantage is the technology and the pushing that forward is kind of the utmost importance and will give us, you know, the best asymmetric risk reward profile as a company. And I think, you know, on the capital project side of building factories, expanding production, like that will always be scary use of capital, but we'll always be there as long as we're growing. Um, and so, you know, our, our cash structure and management structure will look very different than, you know, I think your standard CPG company that probably contract manufactures its products and R&D team isn't, you know, 60% of the company, right? Right, right. Because you've got all that IP really in-house is what you've essentially done. Um, yeah. Th- there was a great, a great book. I don't remember the author, but it was called The Millionaire Next Door. And it really chronicled all the people really across America that you would never know were millionaires because of the way they lived. They were very frugal. And it still holds true today for entrepreneurs. Um, Yes, to your point, it's the type of business that does require, you know, you have a lot of capital expenditures, big CapEx, but that frugal mindset is 100% required. And the days of, you know, lavish spending and offices and, you know, fancy meals and things like that, look, you've got to produce, you've got to get your product into the hands of the buyers, uh, the uh, test kitchens, you know, that's the most important thing. And uh, anything else is a distraction. Absolutely. So I'm just curious, was it ever a, uh, a challenge for you with the investors or, or how much did it help the investors to know that you yourself were a food scientist, that, that you had this background? Yeah, I think being having a technical background definitely, definitely helps, right? Uh, in one of the veins, right, I don't have a business background, and that probably hurt. Um, but, but yeah, having a technical background going into something as rigorous, scientifically rigorous as, you know, starting Voyage Foods, yeah, was definitely was definitely an imperative, right? I, I, I commend the the founders who can start, you know, science-based businesses with no scientific background. Um, I don't know how they do it. I don't know I don't how either. any of them are successful, but, um, but yeah, hugely important. And, and to be able to, you know, at the end of the day, when you're getting seed funding or even a series A pre-real revenue at the kind of market capitalization we are raising at, uh, you're investing in the technology, right? And at that point, you know, the CEO, R&D, VPs, et cetera, they have to really be able to talk to that and really understand it because at the end of the day, that's what the investors are investing in, right? Um, and Well, they're yeah. investing in you, I mean, yeah, ultimately. No, foundationally. Yeah, foundationally, foundationally yeah. of course, right. So, you know, congrats on, on pulling that off. <laughs> I, I, seriously, it's a huge accomplishment. Now, the food itself sounds amazing, okay? Peanut butter, chocolate, coffee. Let's talk about the marketplace. Let's talk about the 
challenges, the obstacles, the wins, kind of what the the buyers are are telling you. What um, what's the marketplace like when you go to them as an ingredient supplier uh, for peanut butter? Hey, guess what? There's no peanuts in this. Yeah, so I think uh, it definitely depends on the product category because I think you know people are going to have different different feelings, assumptions, and and qualms. Let's say uh, whether it's peanut butter or chocolate, right? Peanut butter, I think uh, the peanut free spread is very much so, uh, you know, allergen free substitute. So if you're a cookie manufacturer and you are an allergen on an allergen-free line and have allergen-free products, uh, you couldn't have a peanut butter flavor, right? Now you can. So I think, you know, the hurdle for companies like that is actually a lot lower than something like in, in the chocolate and cocoa space where there's the, but what do you call it, mm. right? Because there's all these very strict standard of identities legally for what you can and cannot call chocolate, right? And, but I think in the most broad strokes, Everyone wants to make more environmentally friendly food and everyone wants, you know, lower cost bill of materials and cost of goods, right? And and those are two things we can very much so offer customers. So I think in that vein, like there is a lot of pull to, you know, our products, our categories, et cetera, because we can offer a very environmentally friendly vegan chocolate chip uh, that tastes like a chocolate chip, that tempers like a chocolate chip, uh, et cetera. Um, and it has, you know, a much, much kind of radically better environmental profile. So um, in, in that way, I think it's it's something that, you know, we, we've had fantastic response from. Yeah, I could see the challenge when you've got multiple categories and food items that peanut butter, chocolate and coffee could be used in a larger recipe in those categories and which ones do you decide to go after? So uh, obviously you're trying to make money and be profitable and we're not going to get into that that side of your business, but are there, are there certain categories or food groups that seem to be more um, accepting, maybe bigger margins, quicker to get started? I know you mentioned peanut butter, but it's maybe more specifically. Yeah, I, I think like the coffee and chocolate long-term will be the bulk of the business. Like if you just look at total addressable market, market sizing, you know, they're both hundred plus billion dollar industries spreads is, is much, much smaller than that. Um, but on the, you know, specifics, I think, you know, probably the food service channel and spreads will grow the fastest. Um, we have, you know, single serves and then bulk that we're selling into food service, some schools now, and it's, ramping up. And I think that that channel will probably grow the fastest along with retail. Um, and, but will be very quickly overtaken with, you know, the commodity ingredient B2B chocolate sales. Did that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Now you said legally there are certain, you know, like you can't call certain things chocolate. So what do you call a <laughs> chocolate that has no cocoa? That's what's, what, what, what do you call that? Yeah, so we're calling them cocoa-free and then the designation. So it'd be if it was a chip, it would be a cocoa-free chip. If it was a coating, it would be a cocoa-free coating. Um, that's that's kind of our stance. Uh, right. FDA law is a lot more nebulous uh, and less cut and dry than I think most people would think. So there's you know your different risk analysis. 
uh, analyses, right? Could we call it cocoa-free chocolate and get away with it instead of a cocoa-free chip? Possibly. Um, but it's all just, you know, at what level of risk do you want to take? And I think where we're mo the most comfortable is, you know, something like a cocoa-free chip. Right. And, of course, you can just go into the buyers and they'll have, of course, all the spec sheets. They'll have samples. It's very obvious to them what it is. So I think, you know, your approach certainly makes sense. Talk to me about the coffee market and the bean-free uh, product line. That is a, that's a huge market. What's happening there? Yeah. So I, I think it's, it's really interesting, right? Because there's, if you look at all the agronomy predictions, right? The growing area for coffee is going to be decimated in the next 20 to 30 years, um, which means there's going to be a lot less coffee on this planet. Uh, there are some people on the plant genetic side trying to fix that. I absolutely hope they, they can figure that out. I think you know, the more solutions, the better to a problem like this. Um, and at the same time, we're seeing uh, huge growth in consumption of coffee. Uh, that growth is not necessarily really in the U.S. or in Europe, but much more so in the developing world. And so I think those markets are you know, maybe the most interesting of where Per capita consumption is rising the fastest, and they're slightly more price-sensitive markets, uh, where we can really deliver something of exceptional value in a price point way, quality way, uh, where people might not be able would be priced out of those you know products, etc. Um, so I think that's interesting. I think you know we've seen a tremendous growth of canned RTD co coffee in the U.S. Uh, obviously over the last ten years. Uh, I'm not sure if that's cooling down or heat or still heating up, but um, I do think you know it's a ubiquitous product, right? There are not that many things that billions of people consume at least every day, right? Like that list gets very small, and so I think you know the coffee space in that sense makes like it's just so interesting because it's so habitual, right? Like I have a cup of coffee every morning. Um, so do a huge amount of people. And I think it's, you know, important for us to be what we're doing, doing what we're doing. So, you know, everyone can do that forever. Right. Because I think a lot of people thought their morning cup of Joe, or if it costs $10, right. Um, it would be a, a very different morning. Right. So obviously coffee being the largest market of the three big segments that you're going after, tell us really what that play is going to look like for you? Where do you think this coffee market can, can open up and you think you're going to have the most opportunity? Yeah, I, th I think for Voyage, it will be, you know, split between both the industrial coffee, liquid coffee and liquid coffee concentrate market, you know, selling any from anyone to, you know, your private label retailers to, you know, other RTD coffee companies, etc. Uh, all the way through food service. I, I don't think we'll launch our own coffee, RDD coffee, so to speak, under the Voyage brand. Uh, hopefully you will see Voyage Foods uh, coffee, you know, in, in other brands, but, you know, primarily focusing on the industrial side. You know, how can we supply 
other manufacturers, whether it's in the ice cream space or the beverage space um, or, or others with, you know, coffee concentrates that they could use in their products. Uh, but also, you know, the food service side, whether it's office buildings, quick serve restaurants or any of the like, is there is also, you know, one of the largest use case scenarios for coffee, coffee concentrates and the like. You literally read my mind because I was thinking you you must be considering launching your own brand. So that is a no. You're going to let someone else deal with that side of it because you're already manufacturing the, the concentrate. So you you already have enough to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think for us, you know, looking at the chocolate, the coffee, you know, and, and the company as a whole, it's really, you know, how can we help other, you know, other manufacturers and other people in the food space do what they do best, right? We're, we're not a brand company at this point in time. Uh, and, you know, the technology, cost of goods, environmental efficiency of what we do is really kind of the, the bulk of Voyage Foods. And so it's really how can we help empower other companies to, you know, have you know, more margin sensitive and climate friendly versions of some of our favorite foods. Okay, expand on that because, like you just said, you're not a branded company yet. Eventually, people will begin to see, oh, it's like powered by Voyage. You know, that's kind of cool. Like, that's what's inside. Um, so, tell us more about your vision then for Voyage Foods. I think, in the most broad strokes, the vision for Voyage Foods is how do we continue, uh, you know, spinning our R&D engine, uh, making more products that, you know, solve human and planetary health problems, right? Uh, whether it's, you know, the deforestation and climate unfriendliness of the chocolate space to how do we preserve the consumption of coffee while the growing regions of, you know, coffee shrink, right? And demand goes up. And at, at broad strokes, it's how can we solve these human and planetary health problems through food? And I think the most efficient way to do that on a large scale, and you know, I think food mostly matters on the largest of scales, right? You know, how, how are you going to make the most impact? It's not uh, us necessarily making our own chips ahoy chocolate chip cookie. It's you know us supplying the chips for a chips ahoy chocolate quote-unquote chocolate chips for a Chips Ahoy chocolate chip cookie, right? And so our our kind of mission and more long-term goals is how do we empower other food manufacturers, CBG companies, and the like to really make more climate-friendly, just products for a growing and changing planet. Adam, this seems just like a giant no-brainer. And obviously, you've had some success attracting investment because it's a brilliant idea. It's working. So where are the obstacles when you look ahead for the growth that you would anticipate? Yeah, I think there are obstacles across the board, right? Uh, you know, we had a banking crisis a few weeks ago. That oh, yeah, is, that is probably going to cause some other other obstacles, right? In, in you know, in fundraising and how companies look at growth and how much they index on growth or sustenance, right? Sustaining where they are versus versus growth, and I think the market will change because of you know the SVB and then related crises that have come out recently. Uh, I think some of the very large, you know, challenges to, you know, that we're overcoming and working on from anyone in the, you know, B2B food ingredients space is 
whether you're selling to a Nestle or any other food company, right? You're swapping out an ingredient, right? And all Correct. these food companies, whether they're very large or very small, have products in market, right? They have consumers that like those products that are in market. They have their own innovation pipelines, et cetera. And whether they, in broad strokes, want, you know, a more climate friendly version that's, you know, low cost, truly fair trade, all these other fantastic attributes, in a like general sense, right, at, they have to turn those thoughts, wants, et cetera, into products that make it onto the shelf, right? And the only way for Voyage to be successful is to then be supplying those customers with, you know, the ingredients so they can make products with our ingredients and get them onto shelves and into consumers' mouths. And I think that that is a massive challenge, right? Uh, how do you sell into some of the largest food companies in the world? They have very different timelines than startup timelines, obviously. Right. And I think navigating, you know, on the customer side and the sales side is, you know, wildly complex when you're looking at this type of sales channel. Do you have to segment the market and say, okay, here are the top 20% big boys that we want to go after. Let's work those long sales cycles. But then we go after the you know small mid-sized firms that are just more nimble and agile, and it doesn't take them that long to get it out of their test kitchens and, and get it on the market. Yeah, you couldn't have said it. <laughs> couldn't have said it better. That That's uh, absolutely what we're doing. You know, parallel pathing the people who will probably be uh, the largest revenue opportunities, uh, while also simultaneously looking at these more small and nimble companies. Yeah, that's wise because you can go elephant hunting all day long. <laughs> Just don't don't avoid you know don't ignore the smaller uh, wins that are you know kind of out there that you can can tackle. Well, absolutely, uh, yeah, and absolutely, and I think part of those small wins is they help be proof points for you know the elephants, as you would say, right? Uh, the elephants typically don't, you know, move before the market's moved. You know, that, that rarely happens. It sometimes does, but it rarely happens. So, it, you know, it that proof point in market is, is important. That's a great point. I think your background as a food scientist, I think it definitely gives you the advantage when you're talking with the R&D kitchens that they have, right? You understand some of the, the, the nuances there. So at least, you know, you can speak to them on their level. I think that's a big advantage rather than someone just coming as a front of the house person who is kind of dependent upon what they say, you can actually provide the details behind the specs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it makes it a lot easier. Definitely. Yeah, it definitely makes it easier. So if someone wanted to sample and try, I know you're not a branded product. Is, is there a way for people to sample and try these great new innovations yet? Yeah, I think uh, companies who are interested in uh, working with us, you know, reach out. Uh, we'll, we'll happily send you some. Uh, our, you know, peanut-free spread is available in some retail, uh, you know, on the West Coast, East Coast, and spottily throughout the U.S., and will continue to be available in more places. Uh, we're launching uh, hazelnut-free spread, as we call it. It's basically uh, cacao nut and dairy free version of Nutella um, alongside Ooh. our peanut free spread in select retail, you know, in the coming months also. So those will very much so be available. People can buy them either, you know, online through our website or 
you know, in retail stores. And then I think beyond that, uh, it's just keep a lookout for us and you'll start seeing that powered by Voyage logo on more and more products uh, in your local grocery store. You know, I just made that up, but is that really how, what you plan to do that? Powered by Voyage? Absolutely. Yeah, we have a, awesome. I think a little trademark seal. Uh, and, you know, I think Gore-Tex and Intel have obviously done a fantastic job. Right, right. That's uh, what comes to mind is Intel, of course. They've done yeah. a great job with that. Yeah, Intel's done an incredible job. And I think, you know, for us, having that seal on it helps, you know, differentiate our customers' products to consumers uh, and really explain in a more detailed manner of, you know, this says it's cacao-free chips. What does that mean? You know, and they're powered by Voyage. And, you know, I think it helps on the storytelling side for our customers to tell that story to their consumers also. Well, as we wrap up today, we just finished up Expo West. So what were your takeaways from the show? So we had a booth at Expo. This was the first time we had kind of exhibited at Expo. I've walked many, many years. Uh, this is the first time I've been an exhibitor. Uh, so I didn't leave our little booth very much. So I don't have any like large scale trend notes for you. But I think from my end, you know, we had we were debuting a lot of our different products, everything from the hazelnut free spread to our coffee bean free coffee, cacao free chocolates. And I think the aha moment and that moment of wonder when people tasted our coffee and said, wait, this doesn't have coffee beans, um, really shows <laughs> that the product is there. And, you know, on the consumer side, people love the products. They love the taste. They you know, love the environmental story. And so I think it was a phenomenal feedback mechanism for Voyage because we just really validated. We have our own internal consumer testing, sensory testing of all of our products. But it was amazing to see thousands of people who also live and breathe food testing this, tasting this stuff over a few days um, and just how unanimously positive people were given that, you know, we're not the classic natural expo west type brand um and more on that kind of technology side but how yeah people's response was overwhelmingly positive and i think you know it's fantastic to see that in the real world that's great because it ain't cheap to nope. <laughs> and i we literally were just a few minutes ago talking about you've got to be frugal you've got to be financially on top of things but hey you got to make that investment too absolutely yeah it, it takes money to make money and you know, getting in front of the right customers, getting in front of the right distributors, et cetera, you know, it, it can be worth the value. I think it's still up in the air of whether we'll realize that, but I think it was a really good investment and I'm sure we'll we'll see the you know positive economic results from that. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you had a great, great experience at the show. We're going next year. We could not make it work with all the uh, podcasts, et cetera, going on. So next year we will be there. I don't know that we're going to, we'll probably just kind of walk the show, you know, and just kind of get to know people. It'll be the, it's always a fun show to walk. Yeah, it, exactly. And I want to, we'll bring our podcast gear, you know, we'll pop in and talk to some brands that we've already, you know, had on and, and talk to them and maybe find some new folks, do some live stream. I think it could be, could be a lot of fun. But Adam, I just, I had to have you down. I've been fascinated with your company. I think, to make something taste so similar is like as though it is. It that's to your point, that point of wonderment. That is that's incredible. 
That's why I had to talk to you to figure out how you did this, you know, how the marketplace is responding and reacting. And I appreciate you just being honest. You know, it is difficult going after the large companies and getting them to change. But let's be honest, you know, you do need the, that consumer push too, right? Absolutely. They're the advocates. They want to make their customers happy. And when more customers say they want this, when more customers understand that the growing zone for coffee is changing and the demand for coffee is increasing, do the math on it. You yeah. know, you, you know, we need some other um, alternatives. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Great to have you, Adam. And uh, we will see you next time. <laughs>